Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest is Dakota Carey, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. Dakota, welcome to the show. Let's start right there. What is the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub and what do you do there? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the China Hub is a, kind of a cross-collaborative center from folks all across the Atlantic Council um, who either have full-time you know, jobs there or are affiliated with it as non-resident fellows the way that I am. Um, it is an ad hoc and like a volunteer service basis. It is essentially a publishing hub for folks who are uh, experts in China, uh, ranging from anything from you know cyber and kind of the AI bucket that I fit into to people who are former intelligence officers from the United States, you know, contributing their opinions to uh, both the China Hub and then eventually down the road to, to policymakers who ultimately read uh, those reports and then ideally use them to inform their decision making. How did you get so interested in just the Chinese part of things? Do you speak Chinese? Is yeah. It, was this just kind of like an early an early fascination of yours? Yeah, I actually got started on the language before I got started on the politics or and then even the the um, you know the cyber focus. I was interning at a Senate office in DC uh, when I was an undergrad and they had Rosetta Stone for Mandarin on the shelf and I was like, "Oh, can I can I take this home and like use it? And they were like, oh, we got it for free. You can have it. Like no one, no one here uses it. Um, so I started there. I took classes in undergrad, um, studied abroad, you know, twice classes in grad school, um, went on a language program through the state department. Um, and so I would actually say that my, my first fascination is with, um, trying to, to master the language and then mm-hmm. applying that in something I'm really interested in, which is, you know, the cybersecurity focus. Was that a difficult undertaking? I, I imagine Chinese having to learn not only a new language but uh, characters and, and and an alphabet is is yeah. It's it's one of those things. Um, you know, the the U.S. government considers it to be uh, one of the one of the five most difficult languages you can learn from English. You know, into that target language. But as as uh, as you spend time in it, um, you know, linguistics folks think of things as triangles. English is um, an uh, you know an upside down triangle where um, it's very easy to get started. And then the more you learn, the more rules there are. In Mandarin, it's the opposite. It's regular triangle. The base is very wide. It's very hard uh, to get up the first few steps. And then after that, everything flows logically. And it's very intuitive to, to learn. Uh, what is your specific area of focus at the Atlantic Council Global China Hub there? Can you talk a little bit about the work you do and what your focus zeroed in on? Yeah. Um, so it's in a lot of ways... Um, what I've done with the Global China Hub is a continuation of research that I had done um, in my and the job prior to that at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. I, I, t- I focus on the things that are like left of boom for hacking capabilities for governments. So there's an entire talent pipeline, education pipeline, tooling and development, you know, all of the policy levers that governments have to use in order to actually create a capable cyber, you know, offense and defense capability. All of those things have have public trails of, um, you know, effort, right? There's there's bud- money and budgets spent on things in furtherance of developing a particular group of people who are good at a specific skill set. It's like any other type of labor category you're trying to bolster, um, and so because of that. It, it provides a lot of public information that we can track down. So at the at Global China Hub, you know, I continue to focus on the things that are left of left of boom, as it were, the things that happen at a macro level that we can observe from the outside and publicly say, okay, this is how we think, you know, things are trending in in the PRC and what this means for um, both the environment of folks having to contend with their offensive capabilities, um, as well as 
uh, government policy and decision makers trying to understand the level of capability currently and then what may uh, be the level of capability five to ten years from now. So let's dig in right there. How would you describe the level of capability of China as a threat actor? I want to read something from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence 2023 Annual Threat Assessment Report. He says, China probably currently represents the broadest, most active and persistent cyber espionage threat to U.S. government and private sector networks. China is almost certainly is capable of launching cyber attacks that disrupt critical infrastructure services within the U.S., including against oil and gas pipeline and rail systems. Now, that stuff sounds dramatic and scary to me. How true is all of that? Um, it's it's 100% accurate. So let me start with the latter half first. Um mm-hmm. In, in one of the last reports I put out through the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, it's called Downrange. And it is kind of a deep dive on six cyber ranges in China. And uh, it, it broadly indicates that there are about 19 or so that I can find evidence of. And a number of them focus on the ability to practice, rehearse, train for, develop tooling, um, attacks on uh, industrial control systems. Uh, there are multiple exercises that include the military, the civilian intelligence service, um, and then civilian operators of uh, critical infrastructure in China, right? And so we, we know that the critical infrastructure operators aren't playing the offense team, they're playing defense. And so, you know, the folks practicing attack them are part of the military and the intelligence services. Um, and, and there are a number of facilities highlighted in that report that kind of go into detail um, about what's capable and what, what they say their own capabilities are. So they absolutely can uh, attack uh, U.S. critical infrastructure and disrupt it. It is not a matter of whether they can or can't. It's a matter of of them choosing not to do so, which kind of gets us to the first part of the question. I feel like I'm in the movie Moneyball when it comes to cyber capabilities. I think that a lot of the conversation about like which nations are the most capable, et cetera, it's a lot of folks sitting around a table talking about, you know, how the baseball player is swinging the bat and they've got a lot of commentary about, you know, the nuance in the way that the person walks or, or you know, is gripping, gripping the bat or throwing the ball or what have you. And the entire point of Moneyball is, you know, the coach coming in and being like, it doesn't matter what they look like. Do they get on base? And if they get on base, that's that's the indicator of their success. Um, and so when it comes to evaluating whether they are or are not capable or, you know, are they on par with the Russians? You know, I've thought a lot about what does it mean to be capable. And from their perspective, as long as they're achieving their objectives, then they're doing just fine. And from the outside perspective, from the from the defender's perspective, I would say that their success uh, has been enough to capture our attention at a minimum, you know, comparing it side by side to, to other countries. I don't know how much value there is in that, because if they're doing what they set out to do, uh, you know, whether how they stack up compared to Russia is irrelevant for them. Right. Um, you know, their managers want to know, did we get the things we were supposed to go get today? And if the answer is yes, you know, they don't care how fancy it was. At the same time, you can't discount how skilled and well-resourced these actors are. We just had this Microsoft signing key issue with the key management issue where we found out that the Storm Group had been sitting on Microsoft's network for many years. That was not necessarily luck. These guys had been sitting there probably knew what they were looking for, had the ability mm-hmm. to reverse everything and figure out what they had their hands on before they could use that access to hack into uh, U.S. government emails, right? So the idea of discounting capabilities because another uh, another threat actor might be more skilled is dangerous there, right? Yeah, not, not only is it dangerous, I, I just think that, it, I mean, it's, it, it's almost irrelevant, you know? It's kind of like they, at the end of the day, they did the thing they were set out to do. The the thing that is the point is a lot of people do discount them for 
the way operations are carried out. And, and, you know, in hindsight, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, this wasn't that complicated X, Y, and Z. And we're ascribing value to a thing that from an operational standpoint, doesn't really have a lot of value. Um, yeah, they're, they're absolutely uh, capable to achieve the objectives that they set out to do most of the time. Yeah, it's just, um, it's one of those things that as somebody who focuses on China, we're constantly having to kind of push uphill on this issue. And it's, it's remarkable that so many people need to be convinced of the merits of China's cyber capabilities when there's just a body of evidence uh, of how capable they are. Uh, private sector has kind of emerged, the threat hunting industry, security research industry has kind of emerged as the place we get visibility from. And one thing I've noticed a very significant change over the years is the notion of attribution has changed. Companies in the past, private sector companies in the past used to say, oh, this is a Chinese speaking actor or an actor that appears out of this region. That has changed significantly. Microsoft is publicly saying this is a Russian actor. This is a Chinese actor. All the public sec- private sector companies are doing it now. Two questions. Why is it, why, why that change? Why do you think, why do you think we are so comfortable and confident with our, um, our attribution pieces? And is there a risk there? Is there any risk at all there about how we're approaching things? Um, so I would say that the, the industry moving towards that kind of more specific attribution is the result of just, a, frankly, like a more rigorous and competitive marketplace for defenders. Um, I think that a lot of consumers come to expect that the cyber threat intel coming out of the folks who's providing them you know, EDR is top notch. Um, whether or not that actually impacts the efficacy of the systems that they're paying for, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever looked into you know the relationship between those two things. But I think if you were to launch a company in today's market without providing that type of detail, um, folks would question your credibility, whether or not it impacted the actual security that your tooling is capable of providing. But at the same time, as we've gotten more specific, we've also you know, from from the outside perspective, been less able to um, cluster activity together into large, you know, what we, APTs, right? Um, it seems as though in the last four years or so, uh, we're nowhere near as prolific in naming and identifying new APT groups as we were, um, you know, in the, in the first eight years of the 2010s. Why is that? But is that, is that a volume issue? Is that a thing that is just so much volume, so many watchers, so many eyeballs, everyone has to, like the naming convention thing is a, not a conversation altogether. But assuming yeah. we had a structure to it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, why is it becoming more and more difficult? Is it just because of how many players are now in the game or how many players are now emerging and becoming publicly visible? I mean, so I, th- I think there's probably a few dynamics at play. Um, you know, the first that you hint at being the visibility of each of the defensive, uh, you know, companies that are that are you know putting together this information. Um, but the second is it actually may be that our information is getting better, and you know, the things that we were relatively or highly confident about in the early 2010s are things that if we went back and and double checked the work with the same level of data that we have access to today. We may feel less confident about, or we may say, "Oh, well, this group is actually, you know, two or three groups operating in the same facility." But you know, it, it it's kind of captured by the proliferation of unks. There's like uh, a a good number of these unclustered groups, and it seems as though maybe the the volume and the quality of the data that is coming into defenders' hands is allowing them to segment actors in a way that um, 
you know, is technically very visible to them, but from a bureaucratic, like an organizational standpoint, actually has no difference. Maybe there are multiple UNCs that are operating out of the same uh, office or building, or they all report to the same, you know, deputy of whatever in some foreign country, but owing to the slight difference in the tooling that they use, their targeting set, um, how infrastructure is partitioned, then they come out as different actors. And, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's been a professionalization of China's offensive capabilities as the number of, um, you know, activity clustered into APTs has kind of declined over the last uh, few years or so. Do you think we as an industry has gotten better at attribution though? Because in the past it used to be, we don't do attribution because it's very, very difficult to get this right. And it's very, very easy to get it wrong, right? Now we're seeing a lot more confidence in attribution. Are we getting better? Are we better? Are we, are the tools better? Are the people and the training and our visibility and capabilities better? Yeah, I think all of those things are better. I think it's, I think we've matured as an industry. I think what I, what I would say is that I would, be careful that we're not maturing our analytical capabilities to a fault where we're not actually pulling back and going, hey, um, you know, are these activities slightly different in some ways, but in a way that we shouldn't consider that they actually may be related, even though there are slight differences. And so we may be over pivoting on the amount of data that we have versus what an understanding of a country's political organization or, uh, you know, an agency's uh, bureaucratic structure would indicate to us is the natural relationship between some of these, uh, you know, uncategorized groups. There's a school of thought, mostly in the background, that argues that we should stop publishing APT reports and stop outing these things publicly because what we're doing is that we're we're, we're making the ecosystem smarter and making it almost uh, difficult to defend. Where do you stand on just this general publication of APT reports, nation state APT reports in general from every security vendor out there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two sides to that coin, right? The first is there's some merit to making this information publicly available. You know, as um, infrastructure and capabilities and toolkits are burned, um, these bureaucratic organizations have to spend money to, uh, you know, replace right. what was lost effectively or what's been You're burned. You're imposing costs, right? Yeah, they're imposing costs. And like that, that matters for bureaucracies. It matters a lot. Um you know, anyone in the United States who's worked in government and knows anything about the budgeting process probably cries every time they lose $15 million worth of, of capabilities, right? I think the same is true for anyone else working in any other bureaucracy in any other government. And so imposing costs does matter. Um, I think it's a bit cynical to say that, uh, you know, the, the distribution of APT reports is the thing that causes uh, these capabilities to change. And it's being done specifically uh, for the furtherance of cybersecurity companies' own wallets, right? I think I, I've heard the argument plenty of times where they're just like, well, if you didn't burn it, then you could track it. And if that's the case, you know, everyone else would be safer, um, but you need to burn it in order to make money to force them to change, et cetera. I just, I don't put a lot of, uh, I don't put a lot of stock into that argumentation, yeah. It's not a new thing either. We had this conversation around the botnets in the early 2000s. Do we, totally. do we continue to disrupt these botnets and make them more and more resilient? It's that argument. Just, just leave them alone, monitor them, defend them, and stop making them get more and more resilient. I mean, we've seen what happens. We, we know what happens when we do publish these things. We know what happens when defenders are aware. Um, and I wouldn't call it ideal. So I, I don't know uh, in a system where we're not trying to impose costs if anyone's going to be happier. It certainly doesn't seem that way. 
Right. And on the flip side, what we're starting to see now is Chinese private sector firms, usually in the cybersecurity realm, and a Vive company, an anti-malware company, publishing on what they claim to be US APT operations, naming Rob Joyce in one case. What should we read into that kind of counter narrative coming out of China? Yeah, t- totally. So this is, um, for me, it's been in- a- a- incredibly interesting to watch. So I went back, uh, you know, ahead of this interview, and I, I pulled up the the Qi Anxin annual threat report from 2020. Qi Anxin is a spinoff of Chiu 360. Um, there's some like corporate uh, share overlap. I think Chiu 360 owns a small percentage of the company. Big company, significant big tech company in China, right? Just for the Absolutely. audience, right? Yeah. If you're not, yeah, if you're not familiar, um, Chiu 360 is like a mammoth in the cybersecurity industry. There, Qi Anxin is newer, uh, it's lighter weight, more nimble, and it's got just a bunch of really capable folks working there. Is there a US equivalent? Is there a US equivalent we can... Um, I would struggle to draw a US equivalent between them. Cybersecurity company though, right? Yeah, cybersecurity company. Okay. Um, so so Qi Anxin releases its 2020 report, annual threat report, and there are no uh, threat actors affiliated with North America at all. Um, there are two threat actors that have no geographic attribution. There's just kind of a question mark and they stick, you know, some APTs under it and they go, ah, we don't know where these belong. And then in 2021, the US, uh, after the Microsoft Exchange server incident, um, gets the UK, the EU uh, to come together and issue a joint statement condemning China's hacking. And this is the first time that such a public statement has been made by all of these countries together. China's diplomatic strategy is typically to engage smaller countries one-on-one and, and because he knows it can throw the weight around, right? And so it typically tries to divide um, any type of consensus in large organizations by going, no, 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 this isn't about you and them and us. It's about you and I. Um, and so when the statements issued in 2021 after the Microsoft Exchange hack, China gets really upset. Like it makes a, a very significant impact on Chinese policymakers' attitudes about China's reputation in the world. You know, I think it's funny because for a, a, a country who has uh, a political or like a warfare doctrine, it's called the three warfares, that includes um, public opinion warfare. Um, they kind of fell asleep at the wheel in terms of how they were being perceived on their aggression for cyber Secure, uh, you know, offensive hacking. So in the in the U.S., we issue the statement with these other countries in 2021. That's the first year that Xi'an Xin includes uh, APTs attributed to actors in the United States in its report. Chihu 360 follows suit, um, and all of a sudden, the cybersecurity industry in China is is going. Actually, uh, we do have insights. We do see APTs operating from the United States, um, and it's only after that statement that they start to try and place the blame on us. It's around this time that they also, you know, I think in 2022, they put up a bunch of, actually, it may have been, it may have been this year, 23, they put up a bunch of fake accounts trying to uh, masquerade as intrusion truth and blaming uh, hacking operations on an APT in the United States, right? And so they're, they're, Chinese policymakers are aware that there's an issue. They have a perception issue. They're trying to change it. And they're slowly being like, oh, you know, name and shame the United States for its offensive hacking capabilities. Um, but if you look at the threat intel reports, a lot of them are not very specific. They're very old. The content is, you know, in excess of five years old most of the time. And the, and the thing is, is listeners should, should understand that the people in China producing these reports are in between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, 
there's state secrecy laws that are saying if you disclose information relevant to national security, which I guarantee U.S. Uh, information about U.S.-based APTs is considered national security information. If you publish that information, you're subject to fines, jail time, you'll lose contracts, et cetera. But the same people in government are also saying you need to blame America for some hacking. We know they're doing it. You know they're doing it. We need you to say it. Um, and so they they are trying to make them happy at, you know, with both hands. And so they put it in the report and they go, America's hacking us. And everyone over here who can freely publish this information is like, you guys, come on, where's the data? This is not professional. And the reality is their hands are tied. They're, they're trying to make you know, the people in charge happy. And the people in charge are saying, you can't publish that thing that gives you credibility. And so I, you know, I personally kind of feel bad for them, but that's, that's the position they're in. But that's where we're heading, though, right? We're heading into this place where we, we're, we're going to be publicly outing each other's things. I noticed cyber, U.S. Cyber Commandos uses Twitter to do some um, uh, publication of telemetry and IOCs for very, very specific things. We're starting to see this stuff coming out of China. We expect, you would expect the Russians, Iranians, all these other big apex threat actors to be doing this. You expect to see this kind of public information warfare being a big part of this APT ecosystem moving forward? Um, you know, I think that those countries would like to publish and that information change people's minds already. The question becomes like, okay, how do you get that information into the media ecosystem in places that are already not aligned with you, right? So like, um, to some extent, China's actually kind of been successful because they'll put out, you know, press releases. Um, there was one, uh, I think three weeks back now, so mid-August of twenty three. Um, from Global Times. And Global Times is like this very nationalist, jingoistic newspaper that's uh, state run in China. And they're like, oh, later this week, we're going to unveil massive US you know, hacking capabilities. Uh, and, and they didn't publish anything. Right. They're, like there was no follow up on it. Um, but it, it kind of got picked up in the United States. Like it, it went around on Twitter. Um, there was some coverage in US media. And, and that's actually their only goal is to get people talking about U.S. offensive hacking. Um, right. And so they're doing it pretty cheaply because they're not publishing any information they have. But that's the, that's the hard part for them is they've got to figure out what it is they can say and not say that will ultimately get people's attention uh, without giving up too much. We've been down this road before though, right? Like Obama and President Xi met in what I want to say, 2015? 2015. Yeah, September 2015, exactly eight years ago. And at that time, right, there was this big segmentation of hacking for cyber, uh, hacking for government to government spycraft, which is kind of normal. And this hacking supporting cyber theft of corporate secrets and business information. And for, for a very, very long time, starting with the APT1 report all the way through that meeting, the thing was, hey, you guys got to stop with this IP theft and economic espionage. It's really the U.S. tried to make it out of bounds and they met and they agreed. Chinese agreed to back off in 2015. We're at 2023 now. How has the landscape changed from then to now as it relates to, you know, the segmentation of hacking for as it relates to the Chinese? Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked with folks who have um, visibility into uh, data around this time frame, And the, the narrative that's... Um, Put, like is available publicly and kind of the one you'll hear folks reference is that there was a slight lull in 2015 um, in those hacking operations and then activity picked right back up. There, there are a few things on top of this. So the, the folks who have visibility have kind of indicated that if you go back uh, and look at what data is available, the, these folks were not certain that there was a lull in hacking operations. Um, that may have just been 
uh, what was available at the time, what was visible, depends on who folks were asking. And of course, um, the politics of the situation, um, there were probably people arguing that that was happening, even if maybe in fact that wasn't the case. But it coincided with a reorganization of China's military. Um, so in 2015 to 2016, the People's Liberation Army, which is the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, went under a significant reorganization. So what was, uh, you know, in the Mandiant, or excuse me, in the APT-1 report, what was, you know, three PLA was moved under the PLA Strategic Support Force. A number of things were consolidated. It, it was a significant revision. And so the lull also coincided with these massive organizational changes in China's military. Um, and that could have been a significant factor in any changes or decreasing in activity. I think it's safe to say that as their offensive and defensive capabilities have grown since 2015, their activity has also picked up pace. Um, China's economy is currently slowing. I know that that's in the headlines, but I would I would reverse out of the you know the current media cycle we're in and say that they have a, an aging population. Uh, a lot of the cheap labor manufacturing jobs are, are moving into Southeast Asia and China is struggling very hard to get up the value chain of industrial production. They're trying to do um, you know, white collar research and um, design of products that are ultimately manufactured made elsewhere. They, they want the things that make very good money. Um, and you know, a lot of the IP theft has been to further that end and they've been able to do so for the last you know, basically 20 years um, in that direction. But the incentives for them to uh, copy as much commercial information as possible are only going to increase as their population ages and as those manufacturing jobs leave the country. There, there's a hollowing out of the middle class going on right now, youth unemployment officially right. at 20 something percent. It's probably closer to 40 percent based on uh, what a university professor uh, in Beijing has indicated. So there are significant incentives to continue economic espionage because they have to move up that value chain as quickly as possible to, to make up for some of the other gaps that they're experiencing. Major gaps probably also coming with U.S. taking leadership in AI and manufacturing of chips and the ability of Chinese to get access to newer chip technology from U.S. places. You expect, I mean, the, the financial, the, the economic cyber espionage incentives, I, it feels like not only it's there, but it will be exacerbated as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, they, they absolutely will be exacerbated um, and they will, that pressure will continue for the foreseeable future. And none of it actually stopped since 2015 to now anyway, the economic espionage thing, like you said, or visibility kind of waned for a little bit. Yeah. I've not talked to anybody and I've not seen anything that indicated that that behavior has changed. And there's a lot of overlap, you think? Do, do you think there's guys focused on economic espionage and guys focused on the gov-to-gov spycraft or there's groups yeah. overlapping? Yeah, there? yeah. So, so, so those are probably um, broken out in a few ways. I think if, if, there is one takeaway from the 2015 agreement. It may have been that the military would not be conducting specific economic espionage for military, like for their own personal enrichment, right? And so there's there's a few things happening on top of this, right? Xi Jinping is trying to professionalize the the military at this time. He's trying to root out corruption. He is. This is still ongoing, by the way. It's it did start though when he came into office. Um, and part of the thing about the military doing economic espionage is that. They have to either be doing it for a company who can operationalize that information, or the military is going out and perhaps selling that information to organizations in China, uh, or they're meeting a policymaker requirement for like research and development. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if 
folks in the military were trying to enrich themselves via economic espionage against U.S. targets. And so there was a little bit of um, coinciding interest between Xi Jinping and the United States to say, yeah, the military should not be conducting economic espionage. I think that we just perhaps heard that sentence or that sentiment in a different way uh, than how the other person had intended it. You know, the civilian intelligence services, they react to policymaker requirements, just like folks in the United States do. If local or uh, provincial uh, party officials are targeting the development of a specific technology or professionals within their within their remit so within their within their province uh, you know a company within that uh, location etc has identified that they need help uh, procuring or producing a specific technology that gets filtered into uh, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology or the Ministry of Science and Technology. Those are translated into targeting requirements for a number of collection op- opportunities. Um, and sometimes that ends up in offensive hacking against targets. Sometimes that means that somebody um, you know, overseas is actually doing the work. So a report from the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown, I believe it's called China's Wishlist, if I'm not mistaken, has uh, a detailed account of the documents that science and technology diplomats for China fill out when they're overseas. So these folks are stationed um, in embassies abroad, and their function is to identify companies, people, professors, you know, research institutes, et cetera, that have access to or are working on technology that's being targeted by the PRC. And they can they can go down their paperwork and say, oh, this group is interested in a joint venture, or they are interested in selling this technology, we can license it, et cetera. But kind of the unstated result of that is if these people or companies with this information are not interested in willingly selling it or licensing it to Chinese companies, there are other options for collecting you know, that information. And so there's an entire ecosystem dedicated to pulling in collection requirements from private business who need technology, distributing that through the bureaucracy, and then allowing for targeting and collection. I want to fast forward to 2018 when Bloomberg uh, published their tiny spy chip story, uh, Chinese spies attacking 30 US companies using a rice grain spy chip. What was your reaction to seeing that? And, you know, the industry is, there's been, there's been controversies around in that story and what is accurate or not. What can you tell us about Chinese interests in doing implantation and exploitation below the operating system and those parts of computing where we have where we are largely in the dark what is real and what is not yeah so i think it's a place that is ripe for interesting narrative however you know the structural incentives for china to do this type of spying um, are really really low you know china has made a lot of money and continues to make a lot of money being a manufacturing powerhouse for a number of industries, um, including you know, technology, et cetera. If there was going to be one thing that would jeopardize their golden goose, it would be trying to weaponize their position in the manufacturing, the global manufacturing ecosystem. You know, it would be a huge, huge hit to Chinese industry if something like this report was substantiated. Um, I'm personally skeptical of the report. Um, uh, you know, I've talked with folks who, who feel similarly. But I think you know, can I push back on can I push back on this point just a little sure. bit? Like governments generally don't give a shit if they have to to achieve an objective. And I'll give an example: Flame compromising software updates was one of those things where it's one of those things you don't compromise. As long as you remove trust in 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 software update mechanism, you've kind of you've ruined computing. 
nation states go there. They have, they have examples of nation states are all around that go there. Why do you think these guys would not go there for a big objective uh, like this? Sure. When we have examples that they don't really generally care. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that it would something would have to clear a very incredibly high threshold to jeopardize something like this. You know, we, we have seen organizations compromise norms in order to do something very specific, very high value. Um, I'm thinking about the the um, U.S. government, you know, using somebody who is posing as um, an NGO doctor in Pakistan where they were trying yeah, to, to go get, look for Bin Laden. Yeah, yes. they're going to have to, right? So that's a, that's a significant one where it's like, hey, you know, this was a, a, a really important norm that we not violate. And, you know, when it comes down to incredibly high value target, it was something that they were willing to compromise on. Do I think that China has, um, you know, collection targets like that? Absolutely. That said, you know, they're risking a lot to conduct an operation like that, particularly when, you know, other methods of collection are just as capable for a lot of the targets that they're going after. You know, the, the list of the list of places where they would want to jeopardize um, trust in Chinese manufacturing in order to get access uh, to data on a particular device is very, 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 very small. Um, and I don't even know if they would, if they produce devices that are uh, used inside of those targeted facilities. You know, that's that's an open question. You're skeptical of the concept as well, yeah, the concept I, that the Chinese would even do this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, just politically, it would it would just it would just be so damaging to the thing that they value. Like, you know, as, as much as um, as much as we call, call them the Chinese Communist Party, they are very attuned to, you know, global economics uh, and capitalism. And they're very aware of what might scare away companies you know, from, from investing and operating in, in China. Um, and for me, I just, you know, I struggle to imagine that somebody would approve an operation like that if it wasn't against the most high value of, of targets. You know, for the United States, that was Bin Laden, right? We, we also uh, happened as an aftermath of that, of that person's actions. And I think that at the time that that decision was made, right. everyone was in support of doing that. Right. Uh, yeah. And it holds if you consider what Flame, yeah. the, the objective of Flame at that time. I want to pivot and, uh, and change gears. You guys at the Atlantic Council just issued a report, sleight of hand on September 6th. Sleight of hand, how, China's web, how China weaponizes software vulnerabilities. I'm going to post a link to this report at the bottom of this podcast. You co-wrote it with a mutual friend of ours, Kristen yeah. Del Rosso. What's the big picture takeaway of the report? Big picture takeaway is that the requirement to disclose vulnerabilities in software to the Chinese government that was passed uh, and then implemented in 2021 is allowing those vulnerabilities to end up in the hands of China's offensive hacking teams, the military, the civilian intelligence services. So, um, only unique to China, right? This is something that's only unique to China because of this new 2021 law. What did, can you just backpedal a little bit and give me a sense of in 2021, what did the law, what did the law require and what was the status quo? What was it changing? Yeah, absolutely. So the status quo was that there was voluntary disclosure of software vulnerabilities to the civilian intelligence service that has a database of vulnerabilities and voluntary disclosure to China CERT. Um, which is, you know, the critical incident response team to um, to their to their database and to foreign and to foreign and, software. And vendors foreign software well. So Chinese right. guys, prior to this, prior to this law, Chinese security researcher at home finding a bug in Microsoft Office could just report it to Microsoft. Absolutely, that that's as accurate entirely. You know, prior to 2018, um, 
you know, Chinese software researchers could travel abroad for competitions. And then in 2018, there was a policy. Yeah, and they used to come to Pondon. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they used to do really good, really well at Pondon, right? So like in 2018, there's a policy decision from the Cyberspace Administration of China um, and the Ministry of Public Security to not allow uh, cybersecurity researchers to go overseas for vulnerability competitions. Um, there's like speculation that, you know, perhaps somebody was recruited by a foreign intelligence service while they were traveling to one of these. But there's also a lot of public statements from important policymakers, thought leaders, business leaders in China that were calling software vulnerabilities basically a national resource um, that they were kind of the, they, they compared them to coal and timber, right? Like this is a thing that is like basically mm-hmm. imbued to China by the nature of who lives there and what they're good at. Um, and that it shouldn't go overseas and, uh, and that we should not be burning these capabilities uh, for money for competitions like Pwn to Own or, or foreign companies. So after that policy is issued where folks can't travel abroad, China, China sets up its own software vulnerability competitions. It's unclear if it's with state funding or if it was a natural response, but there is a competition now called Tianfu Cup, which is probably the most notable in China, although there are many in China for, for software security research. And folks can you know, publish their vulnerabilities there. An article from the MIT Technology Review in 2021 uh, demonstrated that some of those vulnerabilities were weaponized against targets in China, uh, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, within like 48 hours of the competition. It's not a uh, 100% link that these are automatically submitted back then. But nowadays, under the 2021 law, cybersecurity researchers and companies who become aware of a vulnerability in a product are meant to notify the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology within 48 hours. So this is the law that's passed in 2021. It applies to companies doing business in China. And those companies are you know, software or hardware or network device manufacturers, effectively. So it applies to Apple, for instance. As it's written, it would apply to Apple. Do I think that they're complying? Probably not. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, but we can we can get into that. And so, effectively, what this law does is it creates a gag it creates a gag order on cybersecurity researchers. You, if you are an individual who finds a software vulnerability in one of these products, you are prohibited from disclosing that vulnerability publicly without there being a patch from the company, without coordinating with that company, and you're not allowed to hype up the severity of the vulnerability when it's disclosed. Um, so effectively, you can t- you can tell the government, uh, you can tell the company, and you can't tell anybody else until a patch is available. It, you know, if you're an independent researcher, if you work at the company, or if you if you are doing business in China, you're supposed to tell uh, the same government agency within 48 hours, and then you're supposed to patch it, you know, and do do, do as normal business would. That's the way it's written. And so the content of the report focuses on, okay, so what does this new collection system look like? What does and how and who receives information from it. And then we also, you know, we circle back to systems that were known, the, the vulnerability database for the Civilian Intelligence Service, the Ministry of State Security. We, we went through the handbook for partner organizations of that database and were able to determine that there were 151 companies that supply the MSS with vulnerabilities, uh, that they provide about 1,900 vulnerabilities a year, And there are requirements for the minimum number of employees doing software security research uh, that they have to have to be a part of the system. And so the MSS says, if if you're going to be, you know, a tier one member of our vulnerability database, you need to employ 15 people who are 
uh, software vulnerability researchers. And you have to give us a specific number of vulnerabilities every year to maintain your membership. Um, and they're very public. It's, it's online in the handbook, what it takes to, to be affiliated uh, with this with this database. So you become an ODA factory. You have to become an ODA factory. I mean, you're incentivized to become a, a, a vulnerability re- vulnerability discover and reporting to them factory. Basically. That's exactly right. You've also said that there's some evidence that some foreign firms with Chinese-based operations are complying with the law, like indirectly giving Chinese authorities hints about like potential new ways. I'm reading from a Wired story that covered the report, right? Yes. Uh, do we, what kind of evidence have we seen there and what has been the response to some of these foreign companies who are like caught in this like weird place? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So, um, yeah, I mean, the law is written to include foreign firms. Um, it's, you know, as we were doing the research, Kristen and I came across, uh, lists of members for four of the five new databases, um, that were created after the 2021 law. And one of those lists included, uh, you know, product developers um, or product manufacturers for um, the ICS vulnerability database. And so there were six foreign firms on that list of companies that were complying. It was probably just a fact of somebody making a mistake that that list of those companies was available. Um, the other three databases only include Chinese companies, like Chinese cybersecurity companies that are submitting vulnerabilities. None of them included product manufacturers. Um, and so it may have just been somebody making a mistake or they just didn't care. It's, you know, it's impossible to tell, but yeah, that, that list only had six, but given the way the law is written, um, I, I imagine that there are dozens, if not hundreds, uh, of companies that, uh, are, you know, foreign, foreign firms that are complying with this law. I believe this law was part of Log4j as well. The Log4j reporting got caught up in this, if someone got into trouble or something. Yeah. Can you- can you correct me and clarify that? Yeah, so so happy happy to talk about this. Um, yeah, so so log4j vulnerability is found by a researcher at Alibaba, and he discloses it to the Apache Foundation, and then some number of days later, uh, and the exact timeline is in the CISA uh, review board's first report. Log4j yeah, review Log4J. board yeah. report, right? Uh, they've got they've got a great timeline. It's some number of days. I think it's maybe a week and some change after the researcher reports it to the Apache Foundation that he reports it to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology as is required under this law. The law was in effect, right? The law was in effect. The law was new. And so from my perspective, you know, as an outside observer, I just think his company probably didn't have the bureaucratic process set up to be like, hey, when this happens, then do the following. I don't think, you know, there was a lot of speculation about like, oh, you know, this is someone like fighting back against the system and blah, 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 when it first happened. And the reality is, I I think they probably just didn't have the process in place. You know, it's it's just silly stuff like that sometimes. So pursuant to the regulations uh, that were issued in 2021, you know, the bottom of those regulations specify where in the cybersecurity law that the punishments are specified. And so if you do a careful reading of the regulations from 2021, they reference the cybersecurity law of 2016. And AliCloud is punished in accordance with this. They lose part of a government contract that they have for some number of months. I think it's you know three to six months was basically, uh, you know it's what's coming to mind right now. You can correct us in the comments. Yeah, and, and, and so they, they lost. So they were, punished. they were punished. They lost some business for it. That's what the regulations lay out. And I bring up this specific point because coming out of that Log4j report, Katie Mosaurus published a blog post. She's a member of this CSRB, 
And she publishes her own independent blog post on Lotus Security, basically saying, hey, there's some murmuring that we might want to copy this two-day thing. This is a bad, bad, bad thing. Uh, do you have a thought on like how do we rebalance things if the U.S. system continues to be this voluntary reporting system that was the status quo and, and the Chinese now have legally holding all this? Like, how do we address this balance? And do you believe there's, a ten, there's, a, there's some energy here for us kind of copying that? So, so Kristen and I go through this in the report, and based on what the information that we have, there's a, a mandate research paper from 2020 that discusses the time between observed ODA exploitation and a patch being released. Um, and they have a, a pretty large data set in that report. Um, it's cited in sleight of hand if you, if you want to go find it and read it. And their data showed that the, the median patch time was nine days. And so there are nine days that pass between observed exploitation and the company issuing a patch, which is pretty quick. And so my pushback on the idea of having a mandated reporting system in the United States or in any other Western uh, country is that companies are really good at patching these things quickly when we can see that there's an issue. I think that independent and separate of that, I would advocate that companies that are complying with the regulations in China, they should be proactively communicating that same information that they're communicating to the Chinese government to their customers, to CISA if they so choose. But I, I think that asking or requiring them to do so adds uh, almost no value from a defender's perspective. There's just not, there's not, there's not much to be done, particularly when the patch is available so quickly. I want to just cl clarify one small thing. You mentioned earlier that vulnerabilities under the new law, vulnerabilities can't be, you can't be, you can't overhype them and, and so on. There, is there a bug bounty ecosystem in China? Is there an internal bug bounty ecosystem where people sell and, and broker vulnerability information? Yeah. So, so there are formal and informal, you know, marketplaces for these things in, in China, it is, it's appropriate. It is legal. It is, um, it's actually recommended by the regulations that companies have compensated vulnerability program. Now, cynically, it's also because they are incentivizing the discovery of these software vulnerabilities that the Chinese government can benefit from Correct. to some degree. However, it's not it's not against the rules. Um, Chinese companies have it for their own products. Foreign firms have it for their products. Um, it's absolutely appropriate for researchers to accept money for those things. And so if you're a business trying to make decisions about how to operate safely in China's you know, tech ecosystem, you should continue to lean into any vulnerability disclosure programs that you have with the understanding that the ones that come from researchers based in China are going to the government. And you should factor that into the prioritization of your software development and patching, uh, you know, in-house. That, that needs to be a, a factor that you're considering when you're sorting through the tickets of what needs to be done. And just to clarify, Chinese researchers can't participate in bug bounty programs here in the U.S., bug crowd, hacker one, they're, they're forbidden from participating in those under this law, right? They are allowed to. They also, they just have to uh, distribute the, they just have to tell the government within two days. They are encouraged to tell the companies. And if the companies run those programs through, uh, you know, hacker one or bug crowd or whatever it is, it's, it's my personal opinion that the Chinese government is not interested in taking enforcement action against those researchers. Like they're not, they're not going to split hairs that, oh, you gave it to, you know, this marketplace that the company uses rather than the company itself. That's not, that's not the intent of the, the policy. And I don't think that they would take action against researchers for doing that.
But what stops that from being an obvious loophole? Just go look for a bug, a, a bug bounty program from the affected vendor and just report it through there instead of doing this two-day reporting to the Chinese government. I'm, I'm a little lost and confused there. Yeah. So is, the, is your question whether or not individual researchers in China may just be submitting it to overseas right. and not telling the government? Yeah, I, I, I think that that probably happens. I think there's probably some researchers in China who have you know, their preferred crypto in violation, or yeah. what have you in violation of the regulations, and they just continue to cash in on the research without telling the government. Because I, there are probably people who are aware of what's going on, and they don't want to participate in that system. And so they try to do workarounds as much as possible, where they're just like, I'm just going to provide this to the company. I'm going to get my money. You know, you can submit these things anonymously. You can work with these companies about any degree of attribution or, or no attribution at all. Um, and so as long as you can figure out the mechanics of how you're getting paid, um, I think there are, are folks who are interested um, in, in taking that type of action. Okay, because I, when I look at like the Microsoft security vulnerability reporting leaderboard and like a lot of the leaderboards for a lot of the places, there's a lot of Chinese researchers featured there prominently. So I just wanted to clarify how these how they're getting prominently uh, recognized there within the confines of the law. It's a little, a little shady there to me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, your report started with a mention of the Tianfu Cup, and you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, which is the Chinese equivalent of this of our point to own hacking contest. Let's just like use that as the equivalents, yeah. right? What, what what we've started to see out of the Tianfu Cup is like no piece of software is safe. I mean, it's been pretty impressive list of uh, uh, exploit chains and so on coming out of there. Those guys cannot travel and, and go anywhere internationally and do it. I've seen a piece from JD Work that basically says, listen, Tianfu Cup could be the equivalent of a military parade where you're kind of rolling trucks and tanks through the street. It's the Chinese saying, hey, these are our capabilities. These are the skills we have. What should we read into that at all? And, and how do you rate the, the cybersecurity talent, the exploit writing talent? coming out of Chinese universities, coming out of Chinese uh, uh, agencies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think that is, um, it's JD Works comparison is a good one. I would like to see Tianfu Cups, you know, supporting organization list. I want to see if there are government organizations on it to say if, if we really can say, um, you know, it's like a military parade of these capabilities. No doubt that those folks are taking actions that support the government. Um but I think we can tighten up that relationship a little bit closer, you know, before equating it to to the military parade. I think the Chinese government hosts a lot of vulnerability competitions that are not Tianfu Cup that you know should be getting that that same level of attention. I mean, the the quality of the researchers are top notch. You just have to look at the quotes of people who lament that Chinese researchers can't come to the United States to participate uh, because they were just so awestruck by you know, what these teams were able to produce. Um, and I'd also pause here and say that a, a lot of our ecosystem is intertwined and companies rely on vulnerability researchers from all over the world to make their products secure, in, including China. And when I testified to the US-China Security and Economic Review Commission, I made sure to highlight that data. One of a, a US company um, who runs a bug, uh, bug platform was kind enough to provide with data that showed how many vulnerabilities and the percentage as well as the payouts we're going to Chinese researchers, and these folks are making you know a significant contribution to the security of products that are produced by Western companies, um, and that provides a real value. You know, as those payments uh, make clear, we we should be uh, thankful that that they are doing so. That said, uh, they're very capable. They're very capable. Um, very capable. Very very skilled. 
you know, I, I think at the high, you know, at the high end of this market, there there's some competitions called robot hacking games that try to automate vulnerability discovery, exploitation, and patching. Uh, they're based off of the 2017 Cyber Grand Challenge in the United States. So they have their equivalent of the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge doing very much the same things over there. Very much the same thing. The the first year the Chinese military won. Uh, the first competition in the years that follow it, it, it transitions from, you know, the, the military participating to the military operating the competitions. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think the vulnerability competitions are, are really interesting to watch. It does show that pretty much any targeted system can't, you know, they can have success on, on most of them. They're not open sourcing their tools though, right? Uh, from what I've seen, no. Actually, in the, in the first robot hacking game, one of, the comp, one of the competing teams actually just submitted tooling that was made public by the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge. So somebody went and oh, you know, copied one of the teams that they you know, <laughs> put on GitHub or whatever, and they submitted it and they just kind of hoped for the best and they, they didn't win, you know, which means that the folks who did win in that first competition were already performing better than some of the teams competing in the DARPA Challenge. And so when, I, when I'm thinking about what software vulnerability competitions mean uh, for defenders and for policymakers... The ones that really interest me are the ones where they're trying to automate that process or they're trying to innovate right. on what, what the process uh, looks like. And uh, we're running out of time and I want to leave you with this last question. A lot of my audience are CISOs, security directors, guys in the mine, pocket mines and in the trenches doing defensive things. Uh, talk to them directly about why they should pay attention to Chinese threat landscape. Why should I care about this stuff when it's all nation state at the top and zero days? That really doesn't bother me. Why should the average defender pay attention to this or, or, or maybe they shouldn't? You know, it, it really, it depends on, I'll say, I'll say this politely. It depends on your threat model. Some, some folks are not at places that are ending up on the 14th five-year plan for technology development. Uh, but there are a number of you who are. Uh, your the technology that your company produces, monetizes, researches, is on a list for development, and those lists directly translate into targeting requirements for offensive capabilities, and that puts some of you in the crosshairs. And so these things that are, I think, fairly compared to climate change in terms of the scale of what's happening within the ecosystem is going to have a granular effect on what you're responsible for who you're responsible to, what they care about. And I, I think that having that strategic contextual understanding of this particular threat actor is incredibly valuable because it, it's, it allows you to advocate within your own organization for what it is that your team needs. When, when times are tight for a business, uh, a lot of folks look at, well, you know, cybersecurity is basically an insurance policy, so let's just reduce, you know, the cost there. If, if you're on a, a list of, of targeted technology for economic development, that would be a mistake. And understanding the threat right. actor and understanding the environment and your threat model uh, absolutely can help you have those conversations with folks who are not part of the security team. And these conversations aren't ending anytime soon. I mean, we have been having it since Aurora in 2009, through the Obama-Xi meeting, through all these dramatic changes in vulnerability disclosing laws, like the, the importance of paying attention to the Chinese ecosystem just becomes more and more amplified today. In, in a year or two years from now, you and I are having this podcast. Do, do you see things having gotten better uh, from the defender's point of view, or are we kind of in the same place with just new things, new new examples? I would be surprised if things don't get worse. I think China's, China has taken a lot of actions to improve their cybersecurity pipeline. They have formalized education at universities. They've built facilities to, to educate folks um, for offensive and defensive 
you know, cyber operations, they have created a, a certificate system for universities who are, you know, quote unquote, world-class cybersecurity schools. They have specific, you know, criteria to certify these uh, universities as places of valuable cyber talent. They've just put so much time and effort into revamping their talent and capabilities pipeline that when we think back and we go, wow, China has done some amazing stuff from 2008 to 2013. That, those weren't even the golden years. The golden years are yet to come. And that should, that should concern us. All right, let's leave it right there, Dakota. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your willingness to come on and share your expertise with the audience. Thanks again. Of course. Thanks for having me.